morning. Glad to see you all. And good morning to you if you're joining us at the lodge or online. So um, somebody asked me this morning, how you doing? Normal Sunday morning stuff when we're all coming in and scurrying around. And I thought I should be honest. I'm not doing great. I have been really burdened by the events of the world this week. I've been in Israel a number of times, have friends in Israel, and um, it's just kind of made my head spin all week. And even trying to sit down and compose and write a sermon with a spinning interior world is a little unique. So I've been praying a lot, and I found that, um, I don't know that I had a plan to do it, but I made a backdrop to a lot of my praying, the National Anthem of Israel, which is called Chatikva, which incidentally means the hope. And I don't know if you've ever heard it. Uh, Of course, it's in Hebrew, but just the melody of it sounds like an ancient longing prayer. And if you just listen to it, uh, it's powerful and and beautiful. So um, I would like to pray as we come to the scriptures this morning. So please join me. Lord God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, we come to you, our refuge and our strength, in our anger and our upsetness. It seems from Herod and now to Hamas, Lord, we are once again seeing the unconscionable, premeditated evil of the slaughter of the innocents. And Lord, we hoped we lived in a modern civilized world where such brutality wouldn't happen and with our wounds we see that we're wrong and we're so sad Lord Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it This is my father's world, says to him. And though the wrong seems off so strong, you are the ruler yet. Lord, the world needs your help. We need your help. And we appeal now to you. Would you work to bring justice and peace, an accurate and righteous peace as you know it to be? We pray this in the name of the one who is the Prince of Peace. Amen. So Romans chapter 8 has been identified by a lot of theologians and commentators as a unique and special section of the scriptures. I happen to have a great-great-grandfather who is the closest generationally to me that I know of in my family who was a minister, and his name was Timothy Dwight. And there's a story about Timothy Dwight that when he was on his deathbed and he was dying, his son, whose name was Cyrano, came to him, and he said, Father, what can I do to encourage you? And Timothy Dwight said, sit by my bed and read me Romans. 
So Romans chapter 8, it starts with verse 1. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it ends, as we get to the very end of it, that says, And I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the chapter opens affirming no condemnation, and it closes affirming no separation from God. So hopefully as we move through the weeks here, we can enter the beauty of the meaning of this. So we were in planning meetings that are our normal practice coming up to new sermon series. And we talked about, wouldn't it just be so beautiful if our people could actually see themselves in these words? Actually see themselves in these words. No condemnation, no separation. So we have this idea, and it has come into fruition, and I get to tell you about it. So this doesn't look like much to you right now, but this is a decal of the opening verses that are no condemnation and a decal of the closing verses of no separation. And the original thought was, it's clear that you could put it on your bathroom mirror and you would see yourself in these words. So these are available to you at the Welcome Connect desk if you would like to get some. Um, Try to leave some for the 930 folks, if you would. And uh, we've got them on our mirror at home, and it's a gift. All right, so a little bit of background to try to help us get to Romans 8. Of course, it's the eighth chapter, so it's preceded by seven others. But the wheels start really spinning in chapter 6 and chapter 7, that get us to the point where chapter 8 is teed up, waiting for us. Chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is trying to teach people what grace really is. And he's teaching this to people who are familiar with Old Testament Jewish law. Old Testament Jewish law was God's instruction for how to live and to serve him. And it's beautiful. And this is a life of dignity and humanity and what it is to live a life founded and grounded on the one true God. And it's all very beautiful, but it's also morally very high and lifted up. And what we begin to understand is we're not in and of ourselves going to be able to be morally good enough to live that standard. But that doesn't mean that the standard shouldn't be given to us. It doesn't mean that you don't offer the beauty even if we may not achieve it. And so in Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is trying to describe this challenge, he says the reality of it is that if you are in Jesus Christ, which is a very distinct phrase, it's not if you're a Christian, if you go to church, and these words are going to matter as we move along a little bit. It says if you are in Jesus Christ, then when you sin, grace abounds. There's more grace from God than your sin. And so his grace is poured out to you. And so you have forgiveness. And then he anticipates the argument that's going to come real quick. Oh, so if you tell people if they sin, then they're going to get grace and not punishment. Then they're just going to go on sinning like crazy. And what Paul basically says is not if they really understand this, they won't. 
Not if they really understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Not if they really understand that God has given the life of his own son that this forgiveness is available. Not if they really understand that Jesus Christ has come into the world to rescue us and offer his life through a torturous and murderous death for our forgiveness. Not if you really understand that, you're not going to abuse it. You're not going to capitalize on it. If you understand that grace, it's going to lead to gratitude. And if you understand that grace, that gratitude is going to lead you to want to please God. Not that we will do it right all the time. We won't. But this is how we will know if the Spirit of God is in us. You will have a desire to please God, even knowing that you and I are going to fall short. So in many respects, one of the reasons Romans chapter 8 is considered so significant is because I think some commentators would say, in this one chapter, you have the best short description of what the whole Christian religion is about. And if we can grasp this, then our hearts are going to be invited to come alive in incredibly beautiful ways. So Romans 6, Paul says, if you sin, then there's more grace for you. And so the law focused people will say, well, that's a terrible idea because then they're just going to sin rampantly. And Paul basically says, no, they're not going to sin rampantly if they understand what God has done for them, for us. Okay, so that's chapter six. And then he goes into chapter seven and he says, and here's my dilemma with this. My dilemma is I have a deep desire to serve God and to do what's right, but I'm so sad that I frequently don't do what's right. And then I fall short and I don't do what's right. And then I know what's right and I want to do what's right. And I have a desire to do what's right because my heart wants to love and serve God with the way I live. And then I fall short again. Paul is us. And we are Paul. Who of any person that is in Christ has not experienced that? It's not so much when you're in Christ that when you sin and fall short that you're running to God saying, please keep the judgment from me. When you're in Christ and you have a desire to serve God, when you fall and you fall short, when you come to God with confession, it's not so much please keep the judgment from me. It's I'm so full of sorrow that I know that this does not please you. And so we're going to get a few things that are set up in Romans chapter 8. Romans 6, if you sin, there's more grace available for your sin. Oh, well, then they're going to sin rampantly. No, they won't, not if they understand it. But my personal challenge with this is I desire to please God with my living, but I find that I fall short of it frequently, and I feel stuck. And then he says, who's going to rescue me from this cycle, this spin cycle? And then he says, thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has rescued me from this. And then the curtain opens. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. If we believed that, and if you've been around hope for a while, you know that when I use the word believe, I don't mean it to mean if the words pass through your ears and you can nod to them, or the words pass through your ears and you like the sound of them. If we believe them, it's both an intellectual and an emotional yes. If we believe there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, we would be so much more joyful and so much more freed up and so much less hung up 
on so many things because our focus would be on Jesus and his gift, not on our sin and our failing. And the difference is enormous. So we're going to be in verses 1 through 4 today, and we're going to work through them. Here we go. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's read that sentence, verse 1, together. Can you do it with me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Okay, now, depending on your background with all of this, if you hear that and you're like, whoo, that makes my head spin, I can appreciate that. And we'll try to unspin it, I guess. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, there's no condemnation. What it means is you will be judged not guilty when you stand in front of God. There is a holy God who is perfectly pure, And what this is saying is there is no condemnation if you are in Christ, because if you are in Christ, you will receive the judgment of innocent. And now if you pay attention to that, you're like, in a sense, like, that's not fair. I'm not innocent. Well, that would be a reasonable thing to understand. And it's true. It's not fair. It's grace. And grace isn't fair. Grace is the most beautiful, remarkable thing that God could ever give to us. So, We will not be judged guilty, okay, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an important phrase, in Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, whenever we have the description of what, in our modern language, we would say so-and-so is a Christian, the word in the New Testament is this person is in Christ. The word Christian is used hardly ever. It shows up a couple times in the New Testament. But Christian is like this title label, But to be in Christ is something much richer than that. To be in something is to be immersed in it, to be in a relationship with it. When Jesus talked to Martha, Lazarus' sister, when Lazarus had died, and we have that famous moment where he says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will not die. He then says to her, do you believe into this? And he's very emphatic about the word into And we're like, do you believe into this? How do you believe into something? Because an actual belief has action with it, and a belief into Jesus has an entrance in a relationship with him. And so there is no condemnation for those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. No condemnation. John 3.16, a beautiful, familiar verse to many people, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, which is beautiful and wonderful and maybe familiar. But it should never, ever, 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 ever be read apart from John 3.17. And John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, now let's get like honest about the way our inside world works often works. 
for many of us, depending on your background with your Christian life, when you've thought about God sending his son into the world, many of us have thought that God sent his son into the world in exasperation and anger to deal with you problem people. I think that's the way many people think of it. For God sent his son into the world with exasperated anger to solve this problem of you problematic people. That's the way many people emotionally grasp Christianity. But that's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn it, but to save it. So the whole motive, the whole action, the whole expression of God is love. But for many of us, however our internal worlds got here through various spin cycles, our thought is it's kind of a begrudging rescue job. And he'll do it because he's tired of us who are pain in his neck and he'll try to solve this pain in his neck. But that's not anything like the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Bailey, who you've heard me reference from time to time, is a prayer writer. And in one of his prayers, he starts and he says, Oh God, who in love and pity sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Have you ever heard that before? Oh God, who in love and pity. Like he understands our dilemma. In love, he has come to rescue us from this brokenness and this sadness and this pain and this hardship. Oh God, who in love and pity sent your son into the world. Not in exasperation and anger, but in love and pity. So if we could begin to see ourselves as people for whom there is no condemnation, right? Now, we're going to get further in. You're going to realize it's not just no condemnation. It's actually joyful acceptance. Because some people say, okay, no condemnation. So what God's done is the minimum requirement from a frustrated, angry God. I'll just remove the penalty. That's not gospel either. It's the love of the Father who has called us home to his heart. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when we sinned, our sin was united to us. But on the cross of Christ, God intends our sin to be separated from us so we could be united to him. Okay, so Dallas Willard says, what a relief it is to be able to meet people without evaluating them without sizing them up in some way. You can do that in the kingdom of God. But let me just begin with yourself. What a relief it would be if you could look at yourself without evaluating yourself and applying the voices of condemnation. What a relief. You can do that in the kingdom of God. Okay, so he goes on in verse 2 to say, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What in the world does that mean? Okay, first of all, in the Bible, life is to be in a relationship with God because God is life. So if you want life, you get it in a relationship with him. So in the Bible, to have life, to be alive, is to be in a relationship with him. So, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life... That is, the Spirit is the one who enables you to come to a place to say yes to Jesus. Because Jesus is life, then we have life in our yes attachment to Jesus. He has set you free. Something remarkable is in this Greek. And you're going to think it's not that remarkable, but I'm going to try to convince you. The you is singular. It almost never shows up singular in the New Testament. 
Almost always, whenever the discussions about what God has done for you, it's plural, like you as the community, you as God's people, you as his family. And that's all beautiful, but here it's you singularly, individually. You. God wants you personally, singularly, individually to know that there's no condemnation for you. And you might have said, I can embrace the idea that there's no condemnation for them or those people. My struggle is my sense of condemnation for me. This is so rare that the you is singular. And so it says he has set you free from the law of sin and death. The spirit does this. He's the one who brings you into relationship with God. Okay, now, the law of sin and death, how does it work? What's he talking about? The law of sin and death basically works this way. I will try to be good to earn God's favor, but when I'm not good, I earn God's condemnation. So now what I focus on is my failings. And this keeps me from an intimate, loving relationship with God. It keeps me from a relationship with God, which is death, as the Bible teaches that. Okay, so what I would call this is punitive, moralistic legalism. And various churches have been peddling this from the earliest days. This is punitive, moralistic legalism. This is get your act together if you want God's favor. Knock off Christianity. And it's been taught since the earliest days. And it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's punitive moralistic legalism. And punitive moralistic legalism keeps saying, get your act together. And if you're not good enough, then you're going to fall short before God. And you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and start behaving right. The church in knockoff versions, has been teaching that for a long time. So a couple of months ago, we talked about the crew. Some, some folks remember this because they emailed me about it. And I mentioned that for many of us, there's a crew of voices in our head that are a crew of people, voices, whatever you want to call it. And whenever they come riding into town between our ears, they bring condemning words. You're not good enough. You've fallen short again. If you really love God, you wouldn't do this. If you cared or you were worth your salt, you wouldn't be having this problem. You wouldn't be returning to this addiction. The crew is constantly bringing condemning voices. And the crew like rides into town. You can like hear them coming. And in this case, it's kind of an odd mental picture, but the crew come riding on horseback into your brain and they're dressed in religious robes to tell you how bad you are. So you know, and I do too, that there's lots of studies these days about people who are leaving church. And the word that's being used is they are deconstructing their faith, that it's deconstruction. I've thought about this a lot. Actually, what I think it is, is I think it's not deconstruction. I think it's disillusion. And I think it's disillusion with punitive moralistic legalism. And I would leave that too, if that was the environment that was constantly peddled and pounded into my brain. In other words, you have so many people who are saying, I'm not doing this punitive moralistic legalism anymore. And so what do I have to do to finally get out of the voices of the crew? If that means I have to leave my church-going habit, then I'll do it. So I make a distinction between churchgoers and Christians. 
Because you can go to church and not be a Christian, and you can be in a church that doesn't teach anything like the gospel, which is all very unfortunate. But it's almost as though this motto is true. Punitive, moralistic legalism, creating joyless churchgoers since 33 AD. (laughs) And you know what I say, churchgoers, not Christians, or not people who are in Christ. Because this has been around since the earliest days. And I think we're seeing a lot of people disillusioned with that. And they're saying, I'm out. I'm not doing that. And I don't blame them. If that's what the church is telling you, you're lousy and you've fallen short again. Like, do I want to go to church every Sunday to hear that? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So it says in verse 3, that the law was powerless, what the law was powerless to do was weakened by the flesh. What Powerless to do what? To make you righteous, to place you in the presence of a holy God with full righteous standing. The law is powerless to do that. Why? It showed us that standard, but it didn't have the power to give us the moral capability to do it. Okay, and so what's God gonna do? Give us the moral capability to do it? He's going to help with that, but what he's going to do is give us the gift of meeting the standard. And how is he going to do that? He's going to come into the world himself in Jesus Christ. What the law was powerless to do, what? To make us perfect, to make us righteous. The law couldn't do it. And every time we tried, we just went back into the negative spin cycle of the crew telling us how lousy we are. And we get so tired and frustrated with all that religion, and we all say, I'm chucking it. I have no desire to keep spinning that painful narrative in my life. What was the law powerless to do? It was powerless to make us righteous before a holy God. So how did God solve the problem of this? How did God make us righteous? God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, God sent Jesus in human flesh to be fully human and fully God, which makes him completely uniquely able to bridge the gap between God and human beings. And so Jesus, who is a human being who is fully human and fully God, can take human sin upon himself, and because he's God, he can make the forgiveness happen forever. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to be in play for this to work. As miraculous as it is, if you don't have a virgin birth, you don't have a a fully God, fully man savior. If the virgin birth is a fable, then Jesus is a nice story, but there's no forgiveness, new life, and eternity in Jesus. He's just a good, nice teacher who taught nice stuff. So you've got all these building blocks of the faith. And God sends his son through conception of the Holy Spirit in Mary. And Jesus comes into the world uniquely capable of bringing about this forgiveness. How is the question. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you see that word? It doesn't say God made Jesus to take away our sin or to forgive our sin. It says he made him to be sin for us. Now this gets hard, but it's true theology 
Because then you go to Isaiah 53, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Those are hard words. But why would it be the Lord's will to crush Jesus? Because he sent Jesus into the world to be sin. And so God would crush sin in Jesus so we don't have to be similarly crushed. So we can be given this incredible gift of life. And so what does it mean for us? It says that the righteous requirement of the law is now fully met in us. Not in and of us, but in us because of what he's done for us. Who don't live according to the flesh. That is in the negative spin cycle of I'm going to focus on my failure again, but according to the spirit. And what's the spirit going to do? Call us to focus on Jesus so that he is where our attention is. You've seen this verse, I bet, but we have to focus on it here for a minute before we end. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace, in my notes I have some underlining, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, it's not by work so that no one can boast. By grace, through faith, not your own doing, gift of God. By grace, through faith, not your own doing, gift of God. And so it's his doing, and it's his gift, and Jesus Christ has come into this incredible gift. And most of us will have a little voice in our head that says, I'm not going to accept it just as a gift, as though I didn't earn it. I'm going to prove that I can earn it. Have you ever heard a phrase, I bet you have one way or another, about somebody who grows up in a wealthy family. Let's say it's a 40-year-old guy, and somebody says, he's never worked a day in his life. Right? And it's a very pejorative idea. Like, that guy's never worked a day in his life. And everybody's sort of like, what a louse. The guy's just gotten inherited money. That guy can either try to do some kind of a job to prove that he's making it, which actually is going to make him a poser, or he could simply say something like this. I've been one of the most fortunate people ever. And what I hope to do with being so fortunate is to be so generous. You see... As far as the gospel is concerned, as far as being without condemnation in God's presence, I hope you never work a day in your life. Because this is a gift. And here's how I'll know, and you'll know, if I'm working at it or you're working at it, there'll be no joy. Because you'll keep grinding the gears on trying to prove God that I'm going to earn this, doggone it. And it's a gift. And how strange is it to realize, but it's true, you have to be humble enough then to say, all right, God, I can't do it. I'm not worthy of it. It's pure gift. And then what would we do? I think what we would do is that we would start being so full of joy. And we would be so grateful if we stopped working every day of our lives for this matter of no condemnation, then we would be entering into the gospel of God's grace. The motto of that, the gospel of God's grace, creating joyful Christians since 33 AD. Quote from Brennan Manning says, as brother David Stendel Rass notes, The root of joy is gratefulness. 
It's not joy that makes us grateful. It's gratitude that makes us joyful. And so now in Christ, God has separated our sin from us by what's happening on the cross. And then the result is that we're focusing now on Jesus and what he's done for us, not on us and our falling short. Why? Because now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now the result is gratitude for the gift and joy. The gospel of God's grace, creating joyful Christians since 33 A.D., May it be so for us. Let's pray. Oh God, would you set us free from the crew, the voices, and the chains and help us be in the full rescue of Christ. In the Psalms, you say it this way, he rescued me and he led me into a spacious place. Lord, for all of us in the room, wherever we may be in this whole Christian journey and whatever our background's been, whatever we've been taught, could you create a fresh movement of your Holy Spirit in us that we would move into that spacious place where there is no condemnation? Lord Jesus Christ, we will never, ever be able to thank you enough for what you've done for us. But we sure want to say thank you. And we want to live thank you. And we know we'll fall short when we live thank you. And we know that we'll hear from you. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. I've already taken care of all of that. Now lift your eyes to me. Bring your joy, bring your gratitude, bring your worship, and come home to life with your Father in heaven who loves you beyond your wildest dreams.